Well, if you would, join us in the book of Philippians, please. The third chapter in the book of Philippians is where we'll find our text this morning. And again, we're so honored and delighted that you would spend your Easter Sunday here at the Cleveland Baptist Church. And again, we're certainly grateful for the church that God has blessed us with here and the people that God has given to us. And certainly every Sunday we gather and we celebrate the resurrection, but there's something special and there's something unique about Easter Sunday. And so again, thank you so much. Uh, for coming. Uh, however you ended up here, perhaps maybe you received something at your door or maybe a friend invited you or uh, whatever the case might be, uh, but we're honored and delighted that you're here. We have been preaching through the book of Philippians uh, here in the uh, year of 2022 and uh, just so providentially God has led us to this third chapter on Easter Sunday and only God could have done that. Uh, some, some preachers, you know, they look ahead and they plan out every Sunday. I'm not that smart for that sort of thing. And so we just get to whatever passage we're coming to. And God brings us to Philippians chapter number 3 and verse number 10 this morning. And I want you to look at it with me if you would. I think maybe the passage will also be on the screen here. And so you can sort of follow along there if you don't happen to have a copy of the Word of God with you today. But look with me if you would in Philippians chapter number 3 and verse number 10. Where the Bible says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. If you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you'll find a a phrase there in verse number 10 where Paul writes that I may know him. The title of the message this morning is know him. You know, there are different levels uh, that we think about when it comes to knowing people. Many know individuals due to some, perhaps some feat or some uh, accomplishment or notoriety that they have achieved here in this life. We live in a celebrity culture and therefore uh, certain people are deemed celebrities. And so you'll see their picture online or maybe in a magazine or a newspaper or perhaps on your television screen. And, And while you've never met them personally, you know what they look like and you know what their name is and you know why it is that they're a well-known individual. And so that's one level of knowing an individual. And we would think of the President of the United States or maybe some athlete or some movie star or some member of pop culture. And, and when we would say the name, everyone would know that person. But do we really know that person? No, we just know what they look like and we know why they're, they're well-known and, and, and we know maybe why it is that they're well-known. And then there's, a, then there's another level in which we might call it the, the acquaintance level. We have lots of uh, acquaintances in this life. There are folks that you're familiar with. Maybe you go to school with them, or perhaps they're a, they're a co-worker of yours. They're maybe down a floor or two at the office that you work at, or maybe they're a few offices away, and you have interaction with one another. You, you, you know their name. They know your name. But, but there's not a deep connection there. It's more of an, a, a familiarity level in which you say, well, I know them. But again, do you really know them? And then, of course, there is the final level uh, that I'm thinking about here this morning, and and that would be to know someone on an intimate or a a cherished level. Um, you You would know their deepest feelings. You would know their greatest fears, their greatest accomplishments, or perhaps maybe their most consuming passions. You know just about everything there is to know about that person. You know where they live and you know what kind of car they drive and you know what their favorite restaurant is and you know, uh, you know again, some of, their, some of their success 
successes and some of their failures and some of the great things that they've done and some of the difficult things and the hurts that have been brought into their lives. And these types of individuals, of course, would be those that, uh, that are nearest and dearest to us. It could be a close friend. It could be a family member, a spouse. And, and when we think about this, we think to ourselves that perhaps this is the level. No doubt this is the level to which Paul is aiming at in Philippians chapter number three. To know Christ as intimately as he possibly could. To know what his passions are. To know what his, uh, what his, his goal is for my life. And to know what he experienced and what he lived for and, and what he lived through. And here's the question I want to ask this morning. Do you know him? Paul's statement reveals that this isn't a location that we arrive at. This is not, listen, this is not a destination. This is a continual journey throughout this life. A lot of people that believe and think to themselves, well, yeah, I, I know him. I've already done that. But Paul, is, Paul has already done that as well. If we're assuming that he's talking about done that, he's been converted, he's repented of his sin, and he's entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is boldly declaring here, hold on, I still have a long way to go. I want to know him in a deeper way, in a deeper level, at a more intimate relationship with him. Some of you have known him, speaking of Jesus, for many years. And yet, and yet you would admit that you know him differently today than you knew him 30 years ago. And because it's Easter Sunday, it is highly likely that there are individuals here who, who know of Christ, sort of that first level of relationship that we talked about. In other words, you know his name, you know why he's well known and, and, and why he's famous, but, but, but you, don't, you don't know him at that deep level. You don't know him at that cherished level. You don't know him at that intimate level. There might be others here today who do know him, but you find vast room for growth and improvement in your knowledge of him. In our text, the Apostle Paul lists several things about him. Listen, that believers in him and unbelievers alike need to know about this person named Jesus. If you're going to know him, you need to know these things. I find four of them in our text. Number one, I believe you should know why he came. You should know why he came. We see that very clearly identified in the 10th verse where the apostle Paul is writing and he said that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. We find in our text two words that are synonymous with the life of Christ. And those words are suffering and death. These words are, are, are preceded by the, the personal pronoun his. I think what we're, what we're given to understand here is that Christ's suffering and Christ's death is so much different than my suffering and my eventual death someday. And Paul is saying, Paul is saying, I don't, I'm not all that interested in my suffering and in my death. I want to know, I want to know Christ. I want to know his sufferings and I want to know his death. What is different about the suffering and death of Christ? It's unique from ours. Christ, listen, his life was, was not about coming here to live life to its fullest. Jesus Christ did not come here to, to simply enjoy earthly pleasures. He did not come to overthrow some earthly monarch. No, 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 no. It's clear in Scripture, in the pages of the Bible, that Jesus Christ came here to suffer and to die. 
But understand this, listen, his suffering and his death were, 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 were different from ours. You see, in our lives, we, we live to live life to its fullest, and, and we understand that along the way, there will be some suffering and death, but, but, but we, we understand that it's certainly not something that we want, it's not something that we're eager for, but it's part of living life here on this earth. But, but listen, get a hold of this, Jesus Christ chose to suffer and chose to die. It, is, it was different from ours. I don't, I don't choose these things for myself. I, I deal with these things because I'm living here on this sin-cursed earth and I have a body that is cursed by sin. But Jesus Christ didn't have to do any of those things. Jesus Christ did not have to come. He did not have to suffer. He did not have to die. And to be very frank, he was different from me in that he was, the Bible says, made of the seed of the woman, whereas I'm made of the seed of the man. And as a result, Jesus Christ did not have a fleshly, sinful nature coursing through his veins. And as a result, he, he did not have to suffer. He did not have to die. He would not have had to deal with those things. You see, you see suffering and death come about as a result of being in a sin-cursed world and, and, and dealing with the sin nature ourselves. My suffering and my death come about as a result of these things. But Jesus Christ, he was separate from these things. He chose these things for himself. And the reality is, the reality is that his suffering and his death are not a result of anything that he had done or anything that he had brought upon himself. You see, God promised Adam that disobedience or sin would lead to death. The Bible says in Genesis chapter number two that God came and God was very clear with them. He said, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they ate the fruit that God warned them about, they died spiritually. And they, listen, they set in motion a physical death for all things. And I just want to pause here for a moment. And I want to say yes. Yes, even something as insignificant as eating fruit that, that, that God forbade them to eat was punished this severely. And from the, listen, from the beginning of, of, of mankind, man has been led to believe that his sin isn't that big of a deal. It's one of the devil's biggest lies. You see, we sit in a room like this this morning and we look at ourselves all dressed up looking pretty impressive on Easter Sunday. And we, we'd like to think about ourselves that, yeah, we're pretty good. We're all right. Here's what we end up doing. We, we, we end up justifying or excusing away our sin. We'll say something like this. Well, yeah, I mean, sure, I've told some lies, but who hasn't? Everybody lies. I've never been to jail. I've never been arrested. I'm not like, I'm not like somebody like that. And in our minds, we, we literally convince ourselves to think that our sin really isn't that big of a deal. And if your sin really isn't that big of a deal, well, then Jesus didn't really have to die for you. Maybe he died for really bad people, but he didn't die for you. And I'm just simply saying, listen, go all the way back to the dawn of creation. And one of the devil's first lies to Adam and Eve is, listen, you can eat that. It's really not that big of a deal. I just want you to know something. Your sin is a big deal. And my sin is a big deal. Oh, I, I may have never spent a, a, a day in prison. I may have never spent a, a, a day in front of a judge. Well, actually, that's not true. When I was a young man, I got a speeding ticket. And I had to appear before a magistrate. But we, we won't talk about that here today. I was going really fast, too, and it wasn't good, you know. 
But you know, we, we, we justify a lot of things, don't we? We think it's really not that big of a deal. I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never, I've never robbed a bank. I've never stolen a, a significant sum of money from me. I've never done anything like that. And I just want you to know something. God told Adam, in the day you eat of that fruit, the day that you sin, whether it's a little white lie or so-called, or whether it's a, a heinous crime, in the day that you sin, you will surely die. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we were conceived in sin. In other, words, in other words, I didn't start sinning when I got to a certain age. No, listen, I had sin coursing through my body from the day of my conception, and so did you. And the Bible is clear that when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, they died. Romans 5 and verse number 12, the Bible says, Wherefore, has by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Adam and Eve, after their sin there in Genesis chapter number three, because they were the only two people alive on planet earth at that point in time, and because they were married, the Bible says that they were naked and they were not ashamed. That there was, they had no covering and there was no shame because they had not yet been marred or touched by sin and by its curse. But when they ate of that fruit, the Bible says that there, there was an element in which their eyes were opened and suddenly there was a, there was a shame element in the fact that we are not, we're not covered and so here's what they did. They went over to a tree. I'm, I'm going to assume it was a different tree than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they grabbed some leaves off of that tree. And they, and they tried to put, put some, some, some aprons together that were made of like fig leaves, the Bible says. And they covered themselves. They thought that was sufficient. Later that day, the Bible says that God came down. And God came to commune with them, but they were hiding from God. They'd never hid from him before. This is the first time they'd ever done anything like this. By the way, the Bible says that they hid from him in the midst of the garden. They, they weren't very good at hiding. God came down and said, where are you? Where are you? God wasn't asking where they were in a literal sense. God knew where they were. He was asking them, where are you spiritually? He knew where they were spiritually as well, but he wanted them to hear, he wanted to hear them say it themselves. And they said this. They said, Lord, Lord, we hid from you because we were afraid. I'd never been afraid of God until now. The Bible says that God came down and God is cursing the serpent and he's cursing the earth and he curses the woman and he curses the man. And did you know what one of the last things that he did that day was before driving them out of the Garden of Eden forever? The Bible says that he, God, made coats of skins. You see, the fig leaf covering that they had made, the apron that they had made was not sufficient in the sight of God. And by the way, neither is the covering that you and I try to make in our lives as well. It's not sufficient. It's not good enough. We try to cover up our nakedness and we try to cover up our shame. And God says, not good enough. You need something more. Therefore, listen, listen, in that garden that day was the, was, was the first physical death of any creature. A, an animal was slaughtered. The Bible doesn't tell us what animal it was, but an animal was slaughtered. And the Bible says that God made, for Adam and Eve, he made coats of skins. You don't have coats of skins without the death of an animal. And listen, that first early day there in the Garden of Eden, moving, moving throughout the pages of the Old Testament, you will find over and over and over again, you will find the death of the innocent for the guilty. 
Every lamb, every goat, every bull that was slaughtered. As, as Noah comes off, the, comes off of the ark, he offers a burnt sacrifice to God. And, and, and the other great patriarchs of the Bible offered sacrifices. And then, of course, Moses comes along. And we have the death of the Passover lamb. A lamb in the first year without any blemish and without any spot. That lamb is to be slaughtered. And we're to remember, we're to remember, listen, that there is a price. There is a price for our sin. And the price is this. The innocent die for the guilty enter Jesus who is made who is made different than us he is of the seed of the woman he's without sin he's without spot he's without stain in fact the Bible calls him the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the whole world and Jesus Christ the innocent one the holy one he suffered and he died to bear my sins The innocent dying for the guilty. The Bible says in Romans 5 and verse number 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for his own problems, his own sins. That's not what it says, does it? It says Christ died for the ungodly. Think about this for a moment. God dying, suffering, being, being brutally murdered for the ungodly. That's what he did. The Bible goes on to say in Romans 5 and verse number 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what I'm saying this morning is if you're going to know him, you must know why he came. You must know why he came. He came to suffer and to die. You and I, we're here and we're living to accomplish some great things. Some of you are trying to get a great education. Some of you are trying to get into a great career. Others of you are trying to get married, and some of you that are married, you're trying to have a family, and and some of you that you've been at this thing for a while, you're trying to retire, and you're trying to enjoy life and get to the golden years, and we're living for self, living for self, living for self, and you get this, and you get this, well, Jesus Christ, why did he come? He came for you. He came for me. He came to suffer, and he came to die. No, secondly, Paul identifies that if we're going to know him, We must not only know why he came, but you should know, number two, you should know that he rose from the dead and he is alive today. You should know that. The Bible says in verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You know, people who die are buried. And uh, at that point, we don't expect to see them again in this life, do we? In fact, let's just be real frank. Someone who has died and was buried, if we were to see them again, we would be very troubled by that. Some of you, some of you, you've, you've lost a, a dear loved one, and, and, um, and, and in your mind you're thinking, boy, it'd be great to talk to them again. It'd be great to see them again. But if you went home this afternoon and they were sitting in your dining room, you'd run for your life. <laughs> well, that's, just, that's just the law of death. When someone dies, they're put into a casket. That casket is lowered to the ground. We throw the dirt on top of it. We plant the headstone. And we understand in this life, we'll never see them again. Ever. Christ was crucified. He was taken down from the cross. He was buried in a nearby tomb. Very early, the Bible says, on the Sunday following all of these events, some women had come. They came to anoint his body. They, they did not come to see if the tomb was empty. In fact, as they were on their way there, one of their chief concerns was, how are we going to roll the stone away? 
They had in their hands, they had in their hands embalming uh, spices and, and, and different ointments for which they were going to embalm a body. You don't embalm a living body. And they were not anticipating that the tomb was going to be empty that day. As they made their way there very, very early, when they arrived at the tomb, the Bible indicates to us that the stone that had blocked the entrance had been removed. And that as they, as they walked inside, as they, they looked around a little bit, they noticed there's something missing here. You know what was missing? The body of Jesus was missing. There were two angelic beings that greeted them at their time at the garden tomb that day. And, and their words are, are given to us in Luke 24, verses 5 through 7. They said this, Why seek ye the living among the dead? And he is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. As our choir sang at the outset of this service, he had said, I will arise, but nobody believed him. And now he had done what he proclaimed to do. And the angel said, don't you remember what he said all of this time? He said that you can bury me and, and, and you can deliver me into the hands of sinful men. But I'm going to rise again the third day. And he did exactly what he claimed he was going to do. And you should know, as Paul wrote here, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. You must know that the resurrection is the most impactful event in all of human history. And we've lived through some pretty incredible days in our lives. Some of you have seen some pretty impressive things. You've seen some pretty awful things. But none of the things that you and I have lived for, have lived through, can compare, can compare to the day that Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And here's why it's such an impactful event. Number one, because it declared, listen, it declared that he is God. You see, you can, you can go to a lot of, you can go to a lot of tombs of religious leaders and world leaders and what you will discover, what you will discover is that when you go there, their graves are still sealed. If you were to dig and you were to exhume the, the box in which they were buried in, you would find their remains are still there. But when you and I go to a tomb uh, just outside the old city of Jerusalem, you'll step inside there and you'll find, oh, there's a bed there, but there's nobody lying in that bed anymore. And the reason is because he came out of the grave. And because he did, it declares he's not just like you. And he's not just like me. And he's not just like the other world religious leaders. No, he is different. He is God. And he proved it by his resurrection. The Bible says concerning, in Romans 1, verses 3 and 4, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, listen, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. See, Jesus walked around for three and a half years, and he told people, I'm the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. I am the one that was spoken about by Moses all the way back in the Old Testament. And the people in that day, they said, you're a blasphemer. You're an imposter. You're a fraud. And they could say whatever they wanted to. When Jesus Christ came out of the grave, Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and he said, listen, that one act declared he's no imposter. He's no fraud. He's, he's the real deal. He is declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Now listen, if the, tomb, if the tomb's not empty, if his body is still in the ground, then you're right, he is an imposter and he is a fraud. But because the tomb is empty, it declares him to be the Son of God. But notice, secondly, not only does it declare he, he is God, but number two, it demonstrates his power. 
It's a demonstration of his power. Paul wrote in, 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 in Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a clear demonstration of his power. The Bible says in that same passage, Romans 1, verse number 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power. With power. Here's what you need to know. Because Jesus Christ displayed power over the grave, he has power over any obstacle or issue that you may be facing today. Far too many of us labor in our sin and we struggle to move beyond the vices of this life, the sin that does so easily beset us. You know what we lose sight of? We lose sight of the fact that, hold on a minute, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he did so, listen, with power and because he has victory and he has power over the grave, you can have victory and you can have power over the issues that you face and contend with in this life. And so it's a demonstration of his power. There's not anything, listen, there's not anything that you and I will ever face in this life that he does not have power over. Notice thirdly, not only does it declare he is God and it's a demonstration of his power, but thirdly, it delivers us from death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ delivers us from death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul is writing and he says in verse number 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Here's what I'm saying. Because Christ rose from the dead, we do not have to fear the grave. I stood at a lot of funeral homes and conducted a lot of funerals. As a pastor, I'm one of the last, I'm one of the last people to ever, to ever see the the body of our loved one before it's lowered into the ground. In a typical funeral, I'll stand and I'll preach the service. I'm talking about in a funeral home. And at that point, the funeral director comes and they'll say, you know, if you'd like to file past the casket one final time and pay your last respects. And I've stood and I've watched as friends and family have filed by the casket, tears in their eye. At that point in time, they then dismiss they then dismiss the, the loved ones and the family and the friends outside of the funeral home where the service was conducted. They wait out in the hallway and they close some doors and the funeral director begins to prepare the body to close the casket one final time. And as the pastor, I normally stand there and I observe. And I watch as sometimes they pull rings off or pins off. It depends on what the family has, their wishes and their desires. The funeral home is usually, and the director is very sensitive to, to, to their wishes and then they begin to lower the, the body deeper into the casket than it already was. And then, and then very carefully, very carefully, they fold the outer, uh, the outer sheets in some respects. They fold those things into the casket. And then they begin to close it. And these two eyes that you're looking at oftentimes are the last two eyes that ever, ever lay eyes on your loved ones before they're lowered into the ground, before they're never seen from again. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you that sometimes I stand there and it's a little eerie. I don't like it. I don't like the thought of someone someday putting me in a box and closing the box and locking it up and taking it to a cemetery and lowering it into the ground into what is known as a vault and covering that up and then covering it up with a bunch of dirt. I'm just not real comfortable with that thought. But here's what I want you to know because of what Jesus Christ did on Easter Sunday morning. It changes our perspective. 
And we, we come to a point where, listen, listen, we, we, that term rest and peace is thrown around a lot. But let me just tell you something. If someone dies with their faith firmly fixed in Jesus, they really will rest in peace. And getting into that box and being lowered into the ground, listen, it's nothing more than you and me getting into our bed like we did last night, pulling the covers up over our head and soundly sleeping until the break of day. And I just want you to know something. For every one of our loved ones who knew Christ as their Savior, that box is nothing to be feared. That box is a place of rest. It's like getting into a bed and waiting, listen, waiting until the sun rises the next day. Oh, it'll be a different day than the day that you and I are familiar familiar with. It'll be a never-ending day in which the sun will never set. And Jesus Christ and his resurrection is a, listen, it delivers us from death. But you should know thirdly, and I must quick, quickly move, not only why he came, you must know that he is alive today, that he rose from the dead, but thirdly, you should know that Christ has a plan for your life. And if you look with me in verse number 12, the Bible says, not as though I had already attained, Either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend or grab hold of that for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He says, I have not arrived. I've not grabbed hold of everything that God wants me to have grabbed hold of. But he says this, I have not already uh, attained, neither were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before high press toward the mark uh, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul wrote, Paul wrote, listen, I've come to the realization that Christ has a plan for my life and he has a plan for your life as well. And here's, here's, here's God's plan. He boils it. He says, this one thing I do, here's the one thing all of us need to do. We need to pursue God's plan. And what does that mean? Number one, that means you must bury your past. You must bury it. We've talked some about death today. Some of you, some of you, you need to take a shovel and you need to start digging. You need to dig a deep hole and you need to take your past and you need to shove it in that hole and you need to walk away from it, never to remember it or think about it or live defined by it ever again. Paul says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. I, I have to think, I have to think that Paul had to forget about some successes. In order to go where God would have us to go, you're going to have to forget about maybe some of your accomplishments in the past. You see, there's, there's people sitting in this room, and you say, well, you know, I, I don't know about this whole thing about being saved. I'm a pretty good person. You know what you need to do? You need to bury that. Because you're not as, listen, I'm not as good. None of us are as good as we think we are. In fact, the Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, he said this. He says, all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What you need to do is you need to bury some things, bury some successes. Paul wrote in verse 4, in, in verse 5 and 6, we talked about this last week, and, he, and he, said, he said this, he said, listen, listen, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was educated, and I was zealous, and I knew the law, and I did everything that a man or a woman thought that they had to do in order to be saved. And Paul was saying, but I'm forgetting all of those things. And you need to forget those things as well. Can I tell you, some of you, some of you don't need to bury your past successes. You need to bury some past failures. Some of you have some major guilt and some major regret that you carry around in this life. Some things that you've done that you're ashamed of, that you're not proud of. And you think to yourself, would God ever save me? Could God ever use me because I have some of these things in my background? And I just want you to know something. If you're going to follow Christ's plan for your life, then you're going to have to bury some of those things. Better yet, listen, you don't dig the hole. Let God dig the hole. Let him bury those things. He's more than capable of doing that for you. So bury your past. Notice. 
You must press forward. Verses 13 to 19. Paul says, I press toward the mark, the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had buried his past and now now he was pursuing Christ and his calling on all those who believe in him. Paul was growing in unity. According to verse number 16, he was growing in holiness. According to verse 18, he was growing in self-discipline and temperance according to verse number 19. And Paul was growing in this idea of emphasizing eternal things over temporal things. It's something we all wrestle with and struggle with. Understand that the Christian life and calling is a lifetime of growth in Christ, pressing forward to gain new ground. So we conclude this morning. If you're going to know him, not just know about him, but you're really going to know him, you should know why he came. You should know that he arose from the dead and he's alive today. You should know that he has a plan for your life that includes burying your past and pressing forward in growth and moving, moving ahead. But you should know finally, verses 20 and 21, you should know he's coming again. Look in verse number 20, would you? But our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I want you to know something. I'm going to see him someday. I'm going to see him. That's what he says in verse number 20. He says, listen, we're going to, we're going to see him someday. I don't know about you, but as a, as a man who is, you know, edging closer to the mid-40s in this life, and I've discovered, I've lived long enough to know that really all that, all that thrills in this life really isn't all that thrilling. All the things that, that sometimes we live for, the accomplishments, the, the places we want to go and the things that we want to do, many of, the, listen, many of those things are not nearly as, as thrilling as we assumed that they would be. And as I've lived with each passing day, I, I find myself looking more and more thinking to myself as I wake up each morning, this could be the day. This could be the day that Christ returns. I hope you're you're looking for his return. Oh, I know, I know it's been 2,000 years since he made this promise. Can I say this? He's never failed to fulfill his promises before, and I don't expect him to start now. I would suggest you start looking for him to return. And when you do, it will change your life and it will change your perspective. Listen, it's good for us. It's good for us to get our eyes off of down here. Down here's problems and down here's possessions and down here's pain and issues. And it's good for us to focus on the life that is coming. But I'm well aware some of you sitting in this room this morning, you don't want him to come. You're not ready. If the trumpet were to sound today, instead of an oh my, it would be an oh me. Don't, don't, don't do it yet. I'm not ready to stand before Christ. I'm not ready to appear before him. I've not yet made my peace with God. No one knows the exact moment he will return. Listen, therefore, it is imperative. It is imperative. You're here today and you're not certain. You're not certain that if he were to return today that you'd go to be with God in heaven It is imperative that you repent and that you be saved and you start living for him. But notice, notice not only am I going to see him someday, but secondly, I'm going to be like him. Would you look in verse 21? Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body? I I think of this body that I have, and I must tell you that it is a major disappointment. (laughs) Major disappointment. I mean, I'll stand and I'll look in the mirror and I'll think to myself, you, 
Boy, you got, you got a raw deal, you know. Major. You know, Paul takes it a step further, doesn't he? He doesn't look at his body and he, and he calls it a disappointment. He says it is vile. Now, that's a stronger word than a disappointment. I, I use the word disappointment. It makes me feel a little bit better about myself. I use the word vile. Just yesterday, I, I, had, I had further evidence of this body being a disappointment, it being vile. I was playing football with my son. You should not do that when you're almost 43 years old. That was a mistake. I was standing outside, and he had thrown the ball to me, and I was running as fast as I could. And I did one of those things where you, you fall for like 10 feet. You know, like you know you're going down. You haven't gone down yet, but you know it's coming. And I went down. I fumbled the football. Instead of him picking it up and running it back the other way, he fell on the ground laughing at his dear old dad who is... My shoulder, this shoulder went into the ground. There is a crater in our yard. I am not kidding. There is a hole in our front yard. I almost dove right into the bushes. I woke up this morning and I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. This vile body let me down yesterday. It is a major disappointment. But listen, listen, there's a day coming. And I get to trade this body in. And when I do, when I do, because of what Christ did for me, uh, this, with, with this new body I'm getting, I'm going to be like him. And with this new body, I'm never going to sin. I'm not going to get weary or discouraged or tired. I'm never going to get sick again. I'm never going to have to get another vaccine or wear another mask or avoid people. Why? Because I'm going to have a new body. Listen, I'm never, with this new body, I'm never going to die again. Because I'm going to be like him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us, listen, he is the son of God and he has power and it delivers us. And we look ahead. Remember, remember I said Jesus, talk is cheap, right? Anybody can say I'm gonna rise again, but Jesus did it. Now what is he saying to us today? He's saying this, he's saying, I'm coming back. And you can take your chances if you want to. And you can sit back and you can say, well, it's been 2,000 years, I bet he's not coming back. But what if he does? And then what? What does that mean for you? Here's what it means for you. It means you lose. But if you and I will come to a place where we'll acknowledge, yes, I'm a sinner, and we'll be willing to repent of that sin and invite Jesus Christ into our heart and into our life and accept that what he did for us on the cross was sufficient, listen, you're no longer a loser, you're a winner. And then you can look forward to the day in which you're going to see him and you're going to be like him. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a minute.